Okay, turn with me to Matthew 6. And we're going to be studying verses 25 to 34. I hope I don't finish this today. I've got far so much material, I'd be running 100 miles an hour through it to do that. But uh, let's read the text first. I just sort of introduced it last week, and we'll really get back. We'll get into the text today. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, as we said, when we studied verses 19 to 24, Jesus focused on our attitude towards luxury, towards wealth. The, that is, the money and unnecessary physical possessions that people store and stockpile for selfish reasons. But in these verses, this passage, he focuses on the attitude towards what people eat, drink, and wear. That is the necessities of life that they we absolutely have to have in order to exist. The first passage, 19 to 24, is particularly directed at the rich. The second is particularly directed at the poor. But being rich, because being rich and being poor both have their own spiritual problems. Uh, the rich are tempted to trust in their possessions. The poor are tempted to doubt God's provision. But whether you're wealthy or poor or somewhere in between, as most of us are, your attitude towards material possessions is one of the most reliable marks of your spiritual condition. So the believer's attitude towards money and possessions is a determinative factor in his or her spiritual health. Now, what is the phrase that Jesus repeated over and over in that passage? Do not worry. As we said last time, it appears three times, verses 25, 31, and 34. And in verses 27 and 28, he asks questions built around the issue of us being worried. So that's the heart and soul of the passage. Worry is a very dangerous item. Bible tells us that for the believer, worry is sin. Why? Because worry is the, the equivalent of saying, God, I know you mean well by what you've promised, but I'm just not sure you can really do it. So worry is the sin of distrusting the promise and the providence of God. And yet we do it all the time. Uh, I gave you that great quote last week. that we It's anonymous. We don't know who originated it. But it says, worry is wasting today's time cluttering up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. Uh, 
but we try to legitimize it, don't we? By, you know, say, well, I'm not worrying about extravagant things. I'm just worrying about where I'm going to get my next meal or something to wear. For the Christian, that's sinful and foolish. Uh, there are, there's no excuse for us to worry even about those basic necessities of life. Why? Because that's God's area. God does not want his children preoccupied with the mundane passing things of the world. He wants us to set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And in order to free us to do that, he says, don't worry about the other stuff. I'll take care of that. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, poor people should worry. I mean, how do they know where their next meal is going to come from? Uh, how do we, they know they're going to have shelter and clothes? Jesus directly says, you're not to worry about that. That's God's area of concern. And he gives this command, do not worry three times. And each time he says that, he tells us some reason. First, he says in verses 25 to 30, worries being unfaithful to your father. Verses 31 to 33, he says, worry is uncharacteristic of your faith. And in verse 34, he says that worry is unwise in light of your future. So let's start by looking at the first one. Worry is being unfaithful to your father. Now, I just read this whole passage, so I won't read it again. But notice that verse 25 begins with the words, for this reason. What reason? Well, that looks back to verse 24 in which Jesus declares that no one can serve two masters. The, since the Christian's only master is God, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Remember, he gave us three principles in verses 19 to 24. First, he said earthly treasures corrupt, verses 19 to 21. Second, he said, yearning for earthly treasures blinds your spiritual vision, verses 22 and 23. And then third, he said in verse 24, you have to make a choice between God and money. So then for all of those reasons, you as a believer are not to worry about those kinds of things. You have a single master. You serve God, not money. Therefore, you cannot become preoccupied with the mundane things of this world. In other words, the reason why you should never worry about finances and never worry about the basics of life, such as what you'll eat, drink, or wear, is because of who your father is. Remember that. It is unnecessary to worry about material things, even the necessities of life, because of who your father is. He's saying, have you forgotten who your father is? So he says, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Now, there's a couple of other things I want to point out about this opening phrase. Notice those words, do not be worried. In the Greek, they translate a present active imperative verb. So instead of being translated like a command to not do something at some future point in time, it's better to translate this as stop worrying or stop being worried. They were worrying about the necessities of life right then. And Jesus says, stop it. 
and it carries the idea of continuous action. Stop worrying and continue to stop worrying. It's the idea of stopping something that is already happening and never starting it again. Worry is the sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. And yet it is a sin that Christians commit perhaps more frequently than any other. Uh, the English word worry comes from an old German word meaning to strangle or to choke. Uh, and that's exactly what worry does. Uh, it is a kind of mental and emotional strangulation, uh, which probably causes more mental and physical afflictions than any other single cause. Now, I'm sure you remember that in the first century biblical times, people were given a first name, and then their last name was son of, so-and-so, and their father's name. Uh, in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus called Peter by his name, Simon Barjona. That is Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, but it was also common for people to develop a last name or a nickname over time, usually related to their occupation or their character. For example, in Acts 4.36, we're told about a believer named Joseph who had a nickname, Barnabas, uh, which means son of encouragement. He was apparently a man who was so encouraging to others that they gave him that nickname, by which he's called throughout the rest of Scripture. And from early church documents, we know that Peter was called the fisherman uh, by many in the early church. Uh, he was a former fisherman who was now fishing for men. Well, among the tombs of the Christians from back then, archaeologists have found one of the graves with the man's name inscribed on the burial box, and his name was Tiridias Amerimnas. Amerimnas. Tiridias Amerimnas. Uh, now, in Greek, the word for worry is merimnas, okay? And when you're dealing with Greek and you want to negate a word, the negative side of it, you put the alpha in front of it. You put the alpha in front of it. So it negates it. And so this believer's name was Tiridias, who never worries. That was apparently his character. That's what he was known for. I wish I could have that added to the name of every Christian, myself included. Bruce, who never worries. Yeah. Second, the word life is a Greek word, which is a comprehensive term that encompasses all of a person's being. Physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. The word's often translated soul because it's that comprehensive in nature. So Jesus is referring to life in its fullest possible sense. Absolutely nothing in any aspect of our lives, internal or external, 
justifies our being worried when we have the master that we do. Now, what specifically is he referring to? Well, what does he say? What you will eat, that's food. What you will drink, that's water or fluids. Nor for your body as to what you'll put on, that's clothing. Food, water, and clothing. Don't worry about those things. Now, in our society, most of us don't worry about those things, do we? We have a refrigerator and cabinets full of food, a faucet that flows with more water than we could ever drink, and a closet full of clothes. But these days, all it takes is a trip down the aisles of your lo local grocery store, and you can see that there are things missing due to supply chain issues that we're dealing with. And there are people who automatically go into panic mode and start hoarding the peanut butter and jelly. Uh, but if you're living in Israel at the time Jesus said this, you might have been far more concerned because there were times when the snows didn't come to the mountains. And when the snows didn't come to the mountains, the streams didn't run. And there went your source of water. Unless you could find a well that was spring-fed, you're in a pickle. And if there was no rain, there was a drought. And if there was a drought, the grass all died and the livestock and herds had nothing to eat. And there were times when the crops were destroyed by a locust plague, and that meant there wasn't any grain to make flour, no fruit to eat. And when there was no flour, there was no bread. When there was no bread, there was a famine in the land. And when there was a famine in the land, there was also no income in the land. And when there was no income in the land, you couldn't afford to purchase clothing. So these words that Jesus spoke that day were tremendously powerful, given the context of the time. He's telling them, don't ever worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't give a second thought to what you're going to wear. I imagine that the majority of the people who heard him that day were just barely getting by on a day-to-day -day basis, totally dependent on unreliable natural resources, must have been completely shocked by that statement. And so certainly that is an indictment for us living in our culture of abundance about those kinds of things. This kind of gives new meaning to our concerns about the supply chain problems, doesn't it? Jesus recognized that man in his fallen covetousness tends to devote his whole life to caring for the externals. All of us tend to devote our whole lives to our food, our house, our clothes, and those kinds of things. But at the end of verse 25, he puts it all into perspective. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than just clothing? I mean, is that all there is to life? Is that all you're going to focus on? You know, frankly, that's the way it is in the world, isn't it? Uh, most people in our world are totally consumed with the body. Uh, just decorate the body, fix up the body, clothe the body, take care of the body, put it in a nice car, let it live in a nice house, stuff it full of nice food, uh, sit in a nice comfortable chair, hang a bunch of jewelry all over it, take it out on a boat, take it on a cruise. That's the way most people live. And I'm not saying that doing and having those things is wrong. The question is, isn't life more than just that? That's what Jesus is saying. 
What are you worried about those things? The body isn't the end of all. Life is not contained in this body. Life is contained in the very nature of God. I live not because my body lives, but because God gives my body life. Life is more than the body, more than food, more than clothes. You won't convince most people in our society of that, but it's true. So why worry about these things? I remember when I was a child, I never worried about those things. Why not? Because I trusted my father would provide what I needed. And my own children, when they were little, they never worried about those things. Why not? Because that was my realm of responsibility, not theirs. And so we too are not to worry about them because our Heavenly Father has assumed the responsibility for providing them for us. Worry is the opposite, folks, of contentment, which should be the believer's normal and consistent state of mind. Every one of us should be able to agree with the Apostle Paul, who said in Philippians 4, 11 and 12, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content with whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. The believer's contentment is found in God and only in God. He controls, he, he owns, he controls, he provides everything we possess and will ever need. Let's think about that for a couple of moments. First, our Father owns everything including the universe. In Proverbs 24, 1, David proclaimed, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So everything we now have belongs to the Lord and everything we will ever have belongs to him. So why worry about his taking from us that which really belongs to him? The story is told that one day when he was away from home, Someone came running up to John Wesley shouting, your house is burned down, your house is burned down. To which Wesley replied, no it hasn't, because I don't own a house. The one I've been living in belongs to the Lord, and if it burned down, that's one less responsibility for me to worry about. I'm not sure many of us could say that. We have lost our perspective on who the true owner of what we possess and use here on earth really is. Second, we should be content because our Father controls everything. Again, David gives us the right perspective. In 1 Chronicles 29:12, he says, both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all and in your hand is power and might and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. And in Daniel 2, 20 and 21, Daniel declared, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power come uh, belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Those were not idle words for Daniel. As became clear later in his life, when the jealous commissioners and satraps tricked King Darius into ordering Daniel to be thrown into a den of lions. 
But God was in control of the, those lions, and so they didn't touch him. Apparently, Daniel slept all night with the lions, even though the text there in Daniel 6 says the king was so worried that he refused to eat or have any entertainment, and sleep fled from him. The king was worried, but not Daniel, because he knew who was in control. Third, believers are to be content because our Father provides everything. He provides everything. The supreme owner and controller is also the supreme provider. Uh, as indicated by one of his names, Yahweh Ra, which means Yahweh will provide. That was the name which Abraham ascribed to God when he provided the ram to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. You've probably heard it said as Jehovah Jireh. It's not pronounced Jireh. It's Ra. Ra. Ra'ah, the Y, yeah, R-A-A-H would be the pronunciation. It's spelled differently, but that in Hebrew, that's the way it's pronounced. So if Abraham, with his limited knowledge of God, could be so trusting and content, how much more ought we to be? Since we know Christ and we have his indwelling spirit in the completed written word of God, as Paul assures us in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply some of your needs, all of your needs, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, the needs which Jesus mentions here in our text are the most basic. What we eat, what we drink, and what we put on. Those are the things that every person in every age has needed. And because most Western Christians have them in such abundance, we don't often worry about them. However, throughout Bible times, food and water could seldom be taken for granted. When there was little snow, as I said, in the mountains, there was little water in the rivers and inadequate rainfall was frequent. And that naturally resulted in a shortage of food, which affected the entire economy, made clothing harder to buy. And yet Jesus says, don't be worried about those things any of those things. Those things are important, but they're not as important as life itself. And to illustrate his point, Jesus shows how unnecessary and foolish it is to worry about those three things, food, life expectancy, and clothing. First, he begins in verse 26 with food. This is great. Jesus is sitting on a hillside there in Galilee, looking down on the beautiful north end of the sea, and I believe that as he's speaking to them, some birds flew across the sky because his words naturally fit such an occurrence and because it was also a long-standing pattern of Jewish rabbis to use visual illustrations when they taught. So I imagine a flock of birds flew overhead as Jesus says, verse 26, look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And John Stott points out that Jesus' statement, look at the birds of the air, is a command, an imperative. He's saying, be a bird watcher. Look at them. Carefully consider them. Why would Jesus say that? Because birds are such a great illustration of creatures that don't worry about where their next meal is coming from. Listen, every bird that lives in this world lives because God gives it life, right? And if God gives life to a bird, he doesn't say, 
All right, bird, I've done my thing. I've given you life, so now you go figure out how to keep it. No, it doesn't work that way. And the birds don't get together and say, well, now we've got to come up with a strategy to keep ourselves alive. Birds do not have the powers of self-consciousness or advanced cognitive processes or the ability to reason. But God gave birds, as well as all other animals, an innate instinct that gives them the capacity to find what is necessary to live. And that instinct varies from bird to bird and from animal to animal in varying degrees in various ways. Some eat worms and grubs. Still others are raptors that prey on living animals. And still others are scavengers that eat dead carcasses of other animals. So God didn't just create life. He created life and then gave the creatures various types of instinct to sustain their lives. For example, in Job 38:41, it says, Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when, it is, when its young cry to God and wander about without food? In other words, the baby birds are crying out to God, the creator, for food. It's God, the creator, who gives the mother bird the instinct to bring the food. Psalm 147.9 makes a similar statement. He says, he gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He feeds those birds through the process of their own instinct. And the Bible describes it as crying out to God. Now, if God's going to take care of the irrational baby birds who cry out to him through their instinct, isn't God going to take care of his own children? That's what he says at the end of verse 26. Are you not worth much more than they? Kent Hughes writes this about this illustration. Quote, When we take a good look at the birds in verse 26, we see the obvious. There are millions and millions of birds, and by and large, they are healthy and happy. None of them are suffering hypertension. None are suffering stress-related diseases. And certainly none of them are worrying. God takes care of them, even though, unlike us, they do not sow or reap. And God will take care of us, too. That is the obvious meaning, end quote. So Jesus is saying, if God takes care of the birds, don't you think he'll take care of you? And by the way, this is not an excuse for idleness. He says in verse 26, they do not sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. That doesn't mean that the birds don't have to work to get their food, and therefore we don't need to either. Uh, birds don't just sit on a tree limb with their mouth open, and God just rains worms into their open mouths. That's not how it works. No, the birds' God-given instinct tells them where to search for food, and they go looking for it, and they work for it. They're busy searching around, gobbling up little insects, worms, preparing their nests, caring for their young, teaching them to fly, pushing them out at the right time, migrating with the seasons. They work hard, and all that work has to be done if they're going to eat, and yet they do it by instinct, and they never overdo it. They don't say, I'm going to build bigger nests, and I'm going to store up more worms, and I'm going to say to myself, bird, eat, drink, and be merry. No, they work within the framework of God's design for them, and they never overindulge themselves. Birds only get fat when people put them in cages. Birds don't overdo a good thing. It's man that has enough but goes for more. 
and they stockpile and they hoard and they ignore God's priorities and his promises and they forfeit a carefree heart. The birds just fly. They don't worry about where they're going to find food. They just fly until they find it and God provides it. And birds can't plan ahead. Certain species will store up nuts and seeds for winter, but they do it out of instinct, not out of fear or worry. Much less do they stockpile simply for the sake of gloating over their hoard. Uh, and in their own limited way, they illustrate what we should know, that the Heavenly Father feeds them. John Stott has a little poem in his commentary on this passage. It illustrates his point. It goes like this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush around and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. So birds have no reason to worry. And if birds don't have any reason to worry, what are you worrying for? Are you not much better than a bird? Don't you think God will feed you too? And think about this. No bird was ever created in the image of God. Not one. No bird has ever was ever designed to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ throughout all of eternity. No bird ever has a place prepared for him in heaven in the Father's house. And if God sustains the life of a bird for whatever period of time he has determined for it to live, don't you think he'll take care of you? Think of it this way. Life is a gift from God. If God gives you the greater gift, which is life, don't you think he'll give you the lesser gift, which is sustaining that life with food? Of course he will. So don't worry about that. If the Lord should choose to cause a stock market crash and bank failure that takes away all the resources that I have saved to provide for mine and Marcia's future, I don't have any right to say, but Lord, what do we do? We won't have any food or clothes. Because if God sovereignly ordains all of that to go away, it becomes his responsibility to feed me tomorrow. And he will. And he's given me the greatest gift. If he's given me the greatest gift of life, don't you think he'll give me the lesser gift of food to sustain that life? And so we like birds have to work because God has designed that we should earn our bread by the sweat of our brow. And Paul said, if anyone's not willing to work, neither he's not to eat either. So just like the bird for whom God provides through instinct, so too God provides for man through his labor. And if God gives me the gift of life, then God will sustain me. John Stott writes, quote, believers are not exempt from earning their own living. We cannot sit back in an armchair, twiddle our thumbs, mutter, my heavenly father will provide and do nothing. We have to work, end quote. It was Martin Luther who said in his rather blunt manner of speaking, quote, God wants nothing to do with the lazy, gluttonous bellies who are neither concerned nor busy. They act as if they just had to sit and wait for him to drop a roasted goose into their mouths, end quote. So Jesus is not saying do nothing. He is saying God will provide for you through your effort. God has promised to sustain his children with food. I, see, I hear people saying all the time, well, our world is running out of food. We don't have enough food to feed all the hungry people in the world. Just in the past couple of weeks, I saw articles 
saying how the war in Ukraine is going to cause a food shortage in this world. All of that is poppycock. Did you know that the statistics for worldwide grain production for 21-22 tell us there are 245 pounds of wheat produced for every single one of the 7 billion people on this planet. And there are 380 pounds of corn produced for every single person on this planet. And 161 pounds of rice and 49 pounds of barley. And what's amazing is it's all grown on just 11% of the Earth's land surface. They tell us that the world already produces, listen to this, already produces more than one and a half times enough food to feed everyone on the planet. We already produce enough food to feed 10 billion people, 3 billion more than we've got. If you made whole wheat bread, that's enough to bake 171 loaves of bread per person per year, along with an incredible amount of cornbread per person. So the issue is not that there isn't enough food that our Heavenly Father provides. It's that we don't do a very good job of getting it distributed to all those people. Consequently, there are many who are starving in certain parts of the world. Sadly, according to the American Farm Bureau, Americans throw away 25% of the food they purchase for at-home consumption. And a whopping 40% of all the food grown and produced in the United States is never eaten. So when people are crying about a lack of food, the problem is not that God hasn't provided it. It's that certain people are wasting it rather than sharing it with those in need. Now I will add one more thing here that some might find hard to hear and may even consider callous, but believe me, that's not my heart. Please listen carefully because I don't want to be misunderstood. First, I want you to remember that Jesus is talking here about God providing for his children. He's not talking about those who are not his children. God is under no obligation to provide for them. He's not obligated himself to do such. Jesus is talking here about God providing for those who are his children. So when you see starvation in a country such as India, remember that the vast majority there are worshiping the false religion of Hinduism with its 330 million gods. India produces a more than enough food to feed its population, but many of them are starving. Why? Because they allow their sacred cows to eat 20% of all their food, and the rodents and rats that they believe are reincarnations of their ancestors eat another 15% of it. That's 35% of their food. It's not that they don't have the resources. It's that they don't have the spiritual connection to God that puts them in a place of blessing. Their satanic religion destroys them. That's Satan's mode of operation. Everything he does ends in death. But God has promised he's going to provide for his children as they're faithful to believe his word. However, he's not obligated himself to provide for those who are not his children. Now, I don't say that with any intent or thought that we ought to simply be uncaring or callous about those people in the world who are starving and say, well, if they worship the true God, he would provide for them, but they don't, so it's their own fault. No. We ought to be concerned about them. 
We ought to demonstrate the love of Christ to them by providing food for them, both physical food and the spiritual food of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that God might call some of them to himself and make them his spiritual children for whom he has promised to provide. We're to demonstrate the compassion of Christ to them. He healed and fed thousands of people who never followed him as one of their, his true children. We should do the same with the lost souls of this world. But the thought for God's children is simple. You should never worry about that, about whether or not you will have enough food to eat because that's being unfaithful to your heavenly father. He's the one who provides the food. Now let me pause before we move to the next thing Jesus says and see is there any questions or comments where we're at? Yes. Also, the scriptures say that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is the kindness. I mean, we don't deserve the kindness of right. the Lord. The world definitely doesn't deserve Right. Correct. Very correct. Okay. Well, now Jesus gives a second illustration. He says in verse 27, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Now, the words Jesus used here have caused a variety of translations in our English Bibles. In the Greek, the phrase literally says, And who of you, by worrying, is able to add to his life one cubit? But if you look at the in, a, in the New King James Version, you will see that it reads, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So let me see if I can clear this up for you. Let's start at the end of the sentence with the word life. It's a word which was used in Greek to mean either height or stature or lifespan or lifetime. Uh, the word is used in Luke 19.3 to refer to Zacchaeus as being small in stature. But it's also used in Hebrews 11.11 to refer to Sarah as being past the time of her life to bear children. So you have to look at the context. Now, in this passage, Jesus did, in fact, use the word cubit, which was originally a unit of measure, going from the elbow to the tip of your finger, a length of about 18 inches on most people. I think mine's a little longer than that. But since a cubit is a length of measure, it would might seem natural to choose the meaning of stature. But that doesn't seem appropriate because the average person never considers worrying about adding 18 inches to his or her height. Uh, you know, Maybe someone with dwarfism might, but the average person does not. But lots of people worry about adding time to their life. In fact, I just saw a commercial on TV for a new medicine for women with metastatic breast cancer uh, that talks about giving them more time to live. Well, I read the small print at the bottom of the commercial. On average, it's only about seven months. Uh, longer, but the drug company knows that most people crave extra time in life. Why? Because they fear death. And so they play to that desire with their advertising because people do worry about adding more time to their life. 
So it seems more likely that what that is, what Jesus is saying here, is he's using this as an idiomatic expression to refer to adding time to one's lifespan. It's similar to the commonly heard statement in our culture when someone has a birthday uh, and they say, well, I've reached another milestone. Well, of course, they haven't actually done that. Uh, but what they've done is use a linear, mention, uh, linear measure as a metaphor for age. In fact, David used a linear measure to refer to his lifespan in Psalm 39.5, where he says, you have made my days as hand breaths, the width of the hand. So Jesus is doing the same thing here. He is using a cubit as a metaphorical device for a short amount of time that one would wish he could add to his life. And thus, what most of the newer Bible versions have done is to change the word cubit into hour so that the idea is clearer to the readers. Personally, I think I prefer the New Living Translation's rendering of a single moment better. But either one is fine. They both express the idea that we cannot add any additional time to our lives by worrying about it. In fact, not only will you not lengthen your life by worrying, you'll probably shorten it. Uh, but oh, do we ever live in a day when everybody wants to do that, don't we? People are almost crazy about vitamins and medicines and the latest diet and going to the gym to exercise. It's almost cultic at times. Now, I believe that doing those things will improve the quality of your life. But according to Scripture, God has determined the length of your life. I go out on most mornings when it's not raining or too cold and walk a couple of miles. Why? Well, I want to burn off excess sugar and fat in my body. I want my old arthritic knees to move because as my neighbor lady with rheumatoid arthritis tells me, motion is lotion. Uh, so I'm trying to improve the quality of my life. But I will not add any more time to my life because God has ordained the number of my days. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written, or were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Job spoke about the lifetime of a man in Job 14.5, and he says, Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. So God has set a specific length of life for every one of us and no amount of worrying about it, no amount of exercise, no amount of vitamins or medicines will ever extend that life any longer. You can worry yourself to death, but not to life. Dr. Charles Mayo, the founder of the Mayo, famous Mayo Clinic, wrote these words. Worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I have never met a man or known a man to die of overwork, but I have known a lot who died of worry. So you can worry yourself to death, but you're never going to worry yourself to life. And yet that's what people do. But when you worry and fret about how long you're going to live, and when you worry about adding time to your life, you're distrusting God, and that's foolish. Because if you turn your life over to God and you're obedient to him, he will give you the fullness of days. 
I believe that the gift of a long life is a gift that comes because God wants you to live for spiritual reasons and purposes, not selfish earthly ones. Our concern should be to honor, obey, please, and glorify him, leaving everything else to his wisdom and care. In the Old Testament, where's I'm at? I'm at a good breaking spot is where I'm at. So let's stop. I know that I would like to continue, but I'm not going to. Just a moment. Let me. Yes, Job 14.5. Okay. Any uh, any comments or questions? Psalm 139.16. Okay. Anything else? There's so much pleasure in worrying, he says. I, I'm not sure. I... As we said, as I said, worries wasting today's time cluttering up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. All right. Well, let's close. People are leaving me already. So let's close with prayer, Frank. Please, my voice is really going today. Father, we bow our hearts.